0: Rogues of the Black Fury, Episode 22 Rogues of the Black Fury, a novel. Written and produced by Travis Hearman. This novel contains violence, adult language, and mature situations. Listener discretion is advised. For more information, please visit travishearman.com slash rogues. Special guest performer, Danielle McCarville. For more information about Danielle, check out the Rogues of the Black Fury podcast website.
1: Chapter 35 The day had worn toward evening when Syra summoned her. Bella stood under the woman's stern gaze, her hair brushed and plaited and tied with perfumed ribbons. She was dressed only in a diaphanous white shift like Cersei's, like those worn by the dozens of slave girls under Sira's supervision. She noted how poorly her stick-thin body offered shape to the otherwise shapeless garment, unlike Sir, Sir and some of the others, who were unmistakably young women and filled out their shifts with all the supple curves that men admired. Perhaps her lack of womanly charms would spare her some of the admiration like that she experienced at the Barmia temple. Cira reached out and lifted Bella's chin, turning her head slightly to the left and the right, her appraisal cold and calculating. "'Well, cir has done well with you. I had thought you too filthy and bedraggled to have much hope of presenting you to the Master tonight. This is fortunate, because it's a very special night. Your arrival is doubly auspicious.' bella resolved to be as compliant as she could manage she would be a mouse with the heart of a pit wolf her insides fluttered and she felt cold and thin this temple was the source of all the pain and terror that she had experienced since her abduction from her theater box so long ago what new horrors lay in store for her with a crazed giggle inside her head she wondered how filton's play would have ended in the Master's presence. You will not speak unless he asks you a direct question, Syra said. An infidel's voice is blasphemy within the Holy Tower. Do not touch him. The slightest infraction will likely earn you a night in the truss at the very least. At worst, you'll wish you were never born. He wants to see you before the ceremony. She clapped her hands and raised her clipped voice. Lovina One of the girls rushed forward, a beautiful girl with long, silken red hair and fair, freckled skin. Yes, Sarah. Take Cole to the grand chamber to await the master. Yes, Sarah. Lavina took hold of Bella's chain and drew her along behind as they wove through the maze of linen curtains and divans to a small side door that had no bar or handle, only a closed grate at face level. She tugged on a golden chain hanging near the door, and a bell rang somewhere beyond. The grate slid open but a crack, then the door opened, revealing a vast hall. Massive fluted pillars stretched to the vaulted ceiling on either side of the cavernous chamber. Evening sun spilled through the entrance, and a broad straight stairway led up toward another broad opening, where a patch of dusky sky awaited. Lavina led her up the stairs, their shuffling footsteps lost in the huge chamber. "'Where are we going?' Bella whispered. The other girl turned on her, her eyes bright with fear, then turned quickly in anger. "'Shh! You shouldn't talk!' she whispered back. She pulled on the chain. "'Hurry!' The broad stairway led up toward another door and the two girls emerged onto a stone catwalk that led directly toward the base of the tower she had seen from the boat. The massive golden disk, an icon of Helion, reflected the god's light with its polished, gleaming face. Bella kept her lips firmly sealed, but her heart quickened, and she trembled. This was it. This was the end of her journey. A feeling like that when she had leaped into the sea settled over her again, familiar, like an old blanket. Mother Inanan would have mercy on her. Her mother would watch over her and see her safely into the halls of valor, and all this suffering would be finished. She looked over the side of the catwalk. It was not high enough to ensure her death. As much as she wanted death, she only had enough courage to make it quick, not long, and lingering. She took a deep breath to steady herself and hurried after Lavina as best she could. In spite of her fear, she could not help being struck by the sheer grandeur of the edifice around her. The massive fortress-like temple complex, with its cyclopean central temple and its golden spires and minarets, and in its center, the lofty golden tower. Everywhere the stone was carved in intricate, elaborate base reliefs, studded with marble and beautiful colored stones. She could not begin to make sense of the multitude of stone carvings, but the weight of the beliefs that went into them bore the burden of centuries. The solemnity, the reverence, and the awe were like an invisible living presence all around her. As they walked the catwalk, Father Helian's last orange-gold rays bathed them. The tower loomed before her like a gold-tipped mace. The moon had already risen and lay low against the horizon like a pale silver disc. Lavina took her through the single black doorway where the catwalk met the tower. Inside, another stairway spiraled up and down, and Lavina led her upward. They passed doorway after doorway to many interior floors. Bella's legs burned with exertion by the time they finally arrived at her final destination, a sumptuously appointed chamber filled with divans and silken cushions and stunning velvet tapestries. Everywhere polished sequins of precious metals, gold and silver and platinum, glittered among splashes of vibrant color. One end of the chamber, which was perhaps twenty-five paces across, was dominated by a lavish golden throne on a dais half as high as Bella. At the foot of the dais, one on each side of the throne were two small circular fountains, burbling with sweet-smelling liquids. In the right fountain, a deep dark crimson that looked like wine. In the left, a frothy ivory-colored liquid that looked and smelled for all the world like real milk and honey. The liquid flowed down polished, elevated copper runnels around the perimeter of the room to disappear into small copper drains in the corners. Around the room lay bowls and baskets brimming with fresh fruit, fresh-baked bread, sweetmeats, pastries, a slow-roasted till fresh from the spit still steaming with its juicy flesh neatly sliced, all manner of incomprehensible delicacies, all in such copious abundance that Bella could not have conceived it if she had not seen it. It was a feast for the gods themselves. Lavina led her toward the throne, tugged her up the dais steps to the side of the throne, then looped her chain under a hook in the floor and gave the hook a deft twist. It clamped down over Bella's chain, holding her in place. The length of the chain kept Bella's hands no farther than a foot from the floor. Lavina turned to walk away, then turned and glanced sidelong at Bella with a sigh. All you have to do is sit here and keep quiet. You won't have to pleasure anyone tonight. That won't be until after your sonethi the girl turned again and hurried away before bella could ask about her senethi the girl had only been gone for a few moments when bella heard movement behind her the throne obscured her vision so that she could not see how he entered the room but a man stood over her almost as if he had materialized from thin air she did not dare look up into his face all she could see was a pair of plain sandaled feet peeking out from under white linen robes. His voice was deep and resonant, with a lilting farthy accent, Look at me. She raised her eyes. He wore elaborate vestments of gleaming white, embroidered with a gold and silver thread. Three massive jewels, one blood-red over his heart, one blue over his right breast, and one green over his left breast, studded the front of his vestments. His dark hands hung at his sides, relaxed, yet poised to move, as if they were placed precisely where he meant them to be, as if every smallest movement of his body was carefully planned and executed. He was tall for a farthy, almost as tall as her father. His gaze was dark and languid, shining from deep-set sockets under waxed, twisted eyebrows past a strong aquiline nose. A long black beard, meticulously braided into narrow strands that sparkled with interwoven golden thread and polished jewels, hung almost to the massive ruby in the center of his chest. His head was shaven clean, and his earlobes, strangely stretched by heavy golden rings, brushed the sides of his sinuous neck. His face might have been handsome if not for the chill blackness in his eyes. "I have heard tales of your mother's beauty," he said. "You might make a beautiful woman yourself one day." His voice reminded Bella of the actor who played Count Orlo-deep and stentorian, accustomed to command, every word and gesture carefully chosen. He knelt on one knee, as quick as a serpent readying to strike, and she shied away. His voice dropped almost to a whisper and she thought she had never heard such a menacing sound. Such a pity that the world will know none of your children. His eyes bored into hers like scorched blackened knives. Her mind reeled, and a black chill fell over the back of her neck like the hand of Heck herself. Her hair stood up and tugged at the intricate braids. But he took no pleasure in her fear as he stood up any more than a python takes pleasure in the fear of a hapless rock rue. Anything she felt, anything she knew, anything she did, was as far beneath him as the squirming of a grub. Another priest, dressed in similar but less opulent robes, thrust open the double doors of the main entrance. The two men exchanged words, and the priest left. Bella recognized one word in their exchange, Shalat Bin the master seated himself on the throne. Soon the priest returned, leading a group of thirteen young farthy men, all dressed in simple linen robes, barefooted, heads freshly shaven, some of them barely old enough to grow a visible beard. Their faces were gaunt, their eyes were dull and half-lidded, almost as if they were drunk, but when they saw the copious amounts of delectable victuals Their eyes bulged with ravenous hunger. The master stood to greet the young man, spreading his arms wide, and said in Farthy, Welcome to paradise. She knew only a smattering of the Farthy tongue, but she was sure those were the man's words. He gestured them all to sit, and they sat. He gestured them all to eat, and they fell to as if they were truly half-starved judging by the boniness of their faces they might well have been the man spoke again in words bella could understand i am Hassad. she understood little after that but the man's words were measured and deep filling the room like thunder he spoke as the young men stuffed their mouths and chewed his words rolling over them rising and falling like the chant of a hundred voices and they could not take their eyes off him. He spoke with grandiloquent gestures and towering purpose. He spoke with the voice of a god. After a while, the frenzied chewing sounds subsided, and a line of slave girls danced into the room, each carrying a beautiful silver goblet that they dipped into the rivers of wine and of milk and honey. Circe was among them, but Bella did not dare try to meet her eye. Circer's face was impassive, taunt, as if resolved to a fate that she was powerless to resist. The starving glints in the young men's eyes returned, but this time food was not the object of their desires. Their gazes caressed the barely concealed bodies of the swirling slave girls. The slave girls delivered the goblets into the young men's hands. Bella jumped as music began to play. Six musicians had appeared behind her on the dais. Each of them bore a strange, stringed instrument with something in their right hands that resembled a small bow. In perfect synchronization, the musicians raised their instruments and bows and played a harmony of haunting, ethereal, intertwining melodies that Bella could never have imagined, except perhaps in dreams of the gods. The slave girls danced and writhed, Even in their drugged dullness, the young men's eyes glowed with desire and wonder. They were more awe-stricken even than Bella. Passionately so, fervently so, fanatically so. Hassad was showing his new underlings a vision of paradise and offering them a taste of it here on earth. The feasting and revelry continued, and as time passed, the young men's eyes began to look even more clouded, Were the food and drink drugged? After a time, Hassad stood up again, raised his arms, and shouted a command. An immediate rumble followed his pronouncement even before the echo had died. The chamber ceiling parted in the center and spread slowly apart, revealing the deep, star-studded tapestry of evening. The massive golden disk glinted in the starlight over their heads, looming over them all. Beside the gigantic disk hung Mother Moon. Bella stared. Something was wrong. Mother Inanan's face was half-eaten away, and the rest was cast in a deep red shadow the likes of which Bella had never seen. Hassad pointed to the moon with a long, thin finger and broke into a deep, sonorous chant. The recruits and slave girls took up the chant. The melody was vaguely familiar to Bella, but she was too dumbstruck to place it. All eyes turned heavenward, and over the next several minutes Bella could see the shadow over the moon deepening, the face disappearing slowly, almost imperceptibly. The chant abruptly ended, and Hassad barked commands. The young men threw themselves prostrate on the floor, clasping their hands in supplication, praying that the moon devils would cease their feeding upon the moon mother's sacred flesh. A trickle of fear chilled Bella's spine. On one hand, she knew from her studies that this was a lunar eclipse, that the moon would eventually emerge from the earth's shadow. But part of her that believed in the tales of the one true church, of how on nights like this the moon devils cornered the helpless moon mother and devoured her, that part of her still feared that this time Inanan would not be able to heal herself, and that without her healing hand the earth would soon be doomed. As she cast her gaze at the desperate young men and the fiercely devout Hassad, she knew well that they believed the latter without a moment's question. The night deepened, and the prayers grew ever more desperate, until some of the young men were howling their prayers for the moon mother's return. Hassad merely continued his chant with a steady, methodical voice, as if he would be just as content for the earth to be destroyed as for it to continue. The moon had almost disappeared completely when the master stopped his chant and spoke again. He issued sharp words and another powerful command. Two robed priests pushed a heavy wooden serving cart into the room. The cart held a large silver-domed platter on top, with the sides of the cart shrouded by a curtain of red cloth that was encrusted with arcane embroidery. The priests pushed the cart in front of the breathless supplicants and stood away. The master walked up to the cart, speaking calmly, but with the force of the entire universe behind him. With a flourish... He took the handle of the domed silver lid and snatched it away, revealing what lay underneath. Everyone in the room gasped. Standing upright on the platter, surrounded by a dark, glistening splatter of blood against the silver, was a man's head. Bella stared. It was the head of the man she knew as Shalat Bin. Hassad barked another command, and the head's eyes snapped open, "'Hassad commanded the head to speak, and the head of Shalat Bin spoke in a gasping, reedy voice as if from a great distance. She could almost imagine the things the head was saying. "'I have returned from Paradise at the Master's all-powerful behest, to show you that everything he says is true. Paradise is truly an eternity of feasting and drinking and all manner of carnal pleasures.' and all of this will be your reward for serving the master with your body and soul. As the head spoke, the eyes of the young men bulged with a mixture of horror and reverence, slack-jawed faces believing every word. They could not see, as Bella could from her slightly higher vantage point on the dais, the slim gap between the edges of the hole cut in the center of the silver platter and the flesh of Shalat Bin's neck. "'Bella had partaken of none of the wine "'or whatever drug the young men had been given "'before they entered the room. "'She was neither drunk on religious zeal "'nor half-mad with lust for the bevy of nubile beauties, "'so it was easy for her to see the truth of the head on the platter. "'For the young men, a head of Shalat Bin "'spoke from beyond the veil of death. "'Her body became indescribably heavy.' How could Kuska defeat such mindless zealotry? The head's words trailed off into silence. Hassad replaced the silver lid, and the two priests wheeled the cart out of the room. He snapped his fingers at the slave girls. Bella's eyes snapped to Circir. Circir swallowed hard and followed the rest of the girls toward the young men. The slave girls filtered into the group, and hands rose to touch their diaphanous shifts, their flesh. The slave girls descended into the crowd of young men, and the bodies became a clutching, writhing mass. Hassad began to laugh quietly, his gaze never leaving the undulating linen-swathed shapes amidst the profusion of silken cushions. Bella lost sight of Sir Sir and looked away as the chamber began to echo with heavy breathing, rhythmic grunting, and suppressed gasping cries of pain and pleasure and fear.
0: Thank you for listening to Rogues of the Black Fury by Travis Heerman. If you enjoy the story, don't be shy. Let me know. I would love to hear from you. And don't forget to go to this podcast's homepage and click the donate button. Give whatever you like, but... Is $4.99 really too much to ask for this many hours of entertainment? Rogues of the Black Fury is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. I encourage you to copy it and give it away to all your roguish friends. Just don't change it or sell it, or the Black Furies will soon be coming after you.